School made me feel thick. You know, I left school thinking I was stupid. So for three weeks before I did my exams, I put my uniform on every day because um, I wasn't going to tell my mum and dad that I'd been at school. And I went for a walk. And if I tell enough teachers to wear off, you'll have to. And I just said, look, I'm not good. That's it. We're joined today by Tony Ryan, secondary head teacher, free school founder, CEO of the Design and Technology Association. You've been extremely successful in your sphere and are now CEO of the Design and Technology Association. I imagine you really enjoyed school. You imagine wrong. Um, school was, uh, looking back on it, um, you can almost segment it into different bits. If I go to primary school for a start, I uh, come from a, an Irish Catholic background. So my my parents were, were very keen on me going to the local Catholic school, um, which was not where all my mates went. All my mates locally went somewhere else. Um, I went to the local primary school, Catholic primary school, and it was hell. Um, I was a big kid uh, at five, six years old, um, tall. Uh, taller than most of the other kids and I remember my mum saying look you know whatever happens you you don't hit them you don't thump them you don't do whatever what she didn't figure was they were going to thump me uh, and I was bullied mercilessly at primary school absolutely mercilessly and I never once hit back and I got to the point where she would drop me in in the morning I would jump the wall um, I would be home before she was um, and I missed nearly a year of school because I just wouldn't go I just refused wow. to go, or, or she'd take me in and I would, as I say, I would I would skip over the wall and I'd be home before her. Um, education psychologists were, were hovering, uh, the whole lot was going on, there's something wrong with this kid, what's the matter with him? Because mm -hmm. I hadn't told anyone what was happening. Um, and um, it then all came out, it all burst out and I said that I was being bullied and I was being, and then the, um, uh, there was somebody from the local authority intervened and said, what do you want? I said, I want to go to the local school where all my mates are. And it was like, it was a one-off. It was like, well, okay, well, we'll give this a go, but if this doesn't work, we're going to have to kick all sorts of other support into place. And the rest of primary there was just wonderful. I loved it. Um, right. Secondary, again, <laughs> it, it sort, of re sort of repeated, not all repeated, but my parents wanted me to go to a Catholic school, which was two bus rides away. All my mates went to the local school up the road again. I went to this Catholic school and, and it was a horrible place. And, and like, you know, we'll probably talk about it two or three times during the course of, of, of this recording because there was so much that I learned there as a, a client that when I later came back in a position where I could actually set the ethos of a school and work mm -hmm. out what a school, how a school acted and how teachers acted, I learned so much from the experience. And uh, to put it in a nutshell, I wasn't called by my first name once, I don't think, when I was at secondary school. I was Boy or Ryan, wow. which is not a good way to, 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 you know, to get a stroppy teenager to actually engage. <laughs> um, I wasn't brilliant at sport. Uh, I was pretty good at football, um, but we weren't allowed to play football because it was rugby only at the school. And I didn't want to play rugby. And we had a big, uh, hairy Welshman that said to me, you will play second row, boy. And I thought, no, I won't. Uh, you know, I, and I, it's a shame because I love rugby now and mm -hmm. I, I would have loved to have played it uh, more. But because I was kicking back, I just refused. And I remember he picked me for the school team once and I played atrociously <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> um, and I was never picked again. But 
Um, no, I, I, I couldn't wait to get out of school and, and actually there's not a huge number of people know but I was asked to leave a little bit early. It was just before the exams and it got to a point where I disengaged completely and they, they said to me, look, there's no point in you being around anymore. You may as well stay at home. Um, and it was a sort of unofficial exclusion. Wow. So for three weeks before I did my exams, I I put my uniform on every day because um, I wasn't going to tell my mum and dad that I'd been excluded. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went for a walk, uh, and I walked through the park, and I, I just kept out of the, anywhere where I'd bump into one of my mum or dad's friends. I avoided, but I went for a stroll, and then I came back, and when mum said I was school, I said, "Yeah, it was great." Um, did the exams, uh, and uh, a long answer to a short question. I mean, I was I was I did a careers interview, and they, and. They said, what do you want to be? And I said, a car mechanic. And I had no idea where that came from because it wasn't in my head before that careers interview. <laughs> really? I said, what do I need for to be a car mechanic? And they said, well, you, you need maths, English, and one other. Yeah. And I thought, well, great. I'll get maths, English, and art then because I loved art. Yeah. Um, so I got those three. If they'd have said nine mm-hmm. in that interview, I think I'd have got nine. But she said three, so I got three um, because that's, my, that's the way my head was working at that time. So... There was so much later on that I learned from that experience that I thought, I don't want any kids to feel like that going the way I felt going to school. Mm-hmm. I, want, I want them to feel like it's their school, not like they were visiting something that belonged to somebody else, which is the way I always felt. Because we, we sort of know, don't we, especially at a primary level, that the jobs that maybe 50% of the children are going to, going to go into don't exist yet. Yeah. And so how can we give them aspiration for something that hasn't been invented yet? Yeah, we're doing loads of work on this at the moment because actually the skill sets that you want the kids to have sit across subjects, not within subjects. Okay. You know, so do you want kids to be able to take the initiative and work off their own accord? Of course you do. How do you build that into your curriculum in order to enable kids to do that? Mm. Do you want them to be team workers where, you know, when they have to, they can play a role in a team without dominating or without being the the person at the edge that never says anything? You know, do you want that? Do you want them to be digital natives? Well, absolutely you do. You know, uh, do, you, do you want them to be able to process data and work out whether this is accurate or whether this is nonsense? All of those things are really important. And communication as well. We, we, we don't teach kids. I say we don't very generally. Some mm. schools do. Good schools do. But if you look at private education, one of the things you get from private education is you get told how to walk into a room, shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye. Mm. That's an important life skill. And so many secondary schools don't teach that. They assume that's going to go on somewhere else at home or whatever. Yeah. But it depends on your background, depends on your social upbringing, depends where you are. You, you might never get that. So you walk in a room and you just don't know how to present yourself to, to people. We used to do at Malaska, we used to do a big thing where we took the kids out of their comfort zone. We took them to a local industry park and we had 50 odd professionals that would come in and interview the students. And we just told them, dress like you're going for an interview. Yeah. And some of them made awful mistakes, you know, <laughs> pl- platforms that high. And, and, and they would hobble into this interview. And in, but they learned from that. They're never going to make that mistake again. They're never going to do it again. They've learned the hard way. And they'd get feedback on, on little things like, how, you know, their body language. Where, where were your hands while you did that interview? I don't know. Where were my hands? We used, to, we used to video the whole thing. And then you'd play it back and you'd find that their hands were like, you know, they were shaking <laughs> on the table or they were doing something. But all of those things have to be taught. You can't assume that their students are just going to pick those up. They have to mm-hmm. be taught. Some kids will get it from home, but not, not, not all of them. 
if we come back to your journey, were you aspirational as a child? This, this, you got struck by this. I want to be a car mechanic. Mm. All of a sudden, after being asked that question, so did you have aspirations to go far being a car mechanic, or how did your journey pan out after that? School, school made me feel thick. You know, I left school thinking I was stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, good job. <laughs> you, yeah. You've got somebody coming in from a very supportive background. My parents weren't well educated. My parents came from a very working class background in Dublin. Um, they left school. My mum and dad left school when they were 14. Right. Um, and they wanted the best for me. They wanted me to, to aspire to great things. But they didn't have any experience of that. They didn't have any, you know, nobody in, in the family had been to university. Nobody there had actually stretched themselves and gone to there. So when I said I was going to be a car mechanic, my mum my and dad were thrilled with that. It was great. That's a trade. You'll be fine. You'll never be without work. True. Absolutely mm-hmm. true. Um, what I learned very quickly as a car mechanic was a few things. First of all, all the maths and all the physics that made no sense whatsoever when I was at school. You put an engine in front of me and you put a reason to learn those subjects in front of me. All of a sudden it was like, God, why didn't they tell me that at school? That makes sense now, you know? That is not going to do that unless that's, that's right over there, you know? That tolerance has got to be spot on and it's within a, a fraction of a millimetre and I've got to make sure that's right. All of those things suddenly made sense to me. So context for learning as a teacher has been really important to me and mm-hmm. still is. I, I, I think telling kids that they're learning something because there's an exam coming mm-hmm. is never the answer to anything really. Mm-hmm. You have to tell them beyond that, you know, this is going to be useful for you for the rest of your life. You may never use Pythagoras' theorem again ever, but it's really useful to know what it is because all it is is a way of solving a problem and you're going to hit problems. So let's go back to your journey mm. because we're, we're at a point where you're a car mechanic mm. and then we know that you're going to be a head teacher. So how do you transition from car mechanic to head teacher? That was a fluke, complete <laughs> fluke, um, as some of the best things are in life, I found. Um, I was on my way home one night covered in oil on the tube um, and I opened up the Evening Standard and there was a little advert in there. It said, uh, have you thought of teaching? And I sort of laughed mm. and have I echoes like, I'm not going back to school. <laughs> And then it was like, we'll pay you to teach design and technology and to train to teach design and technology. We'll pay you to do your degree. And I thought, well, someone's going to pay me because at this stage I got used to a salary. It was Mm -hmm. like, someone's going to pay me to do a degree and I'm going to get some money, not what I'm on at the moment, but I'm going to get some money. I'll do that and then I'll jump back into the motor industry. That was the plan. Uh, You know, just use this advert in order to get my degree. so I went, it was last year of Inner London Education Authority, so it shows you how old I am. Um, and I had the interview and I got it and it was and it was great and uh, I went into it and within three weeks I was in a school. Um, and the idea was that you were supposed to be observing, you weren't, you're only three weeks in, you weren't mm-hmm. supposed to be teaching. But this guy said to me, do you, you, do you want to teach a little bit of this lesson? And I said, yeah, I'll have a go, I'll have a go a little bit. And it was year 10s, I remember it was at a school in East London um, and I had loads of planning because he told me the day before this was going to happen. Um, and after five minutes, he got up and left the room. And he left me with uh, nearly 30 year 10 students in a pretty rough school in East London at the yeah. time. Um, and I had to survive the next 55 minutes. And I did. I survived it. I sweated profusely. It was like the hardest moment of my life to that point. But at the end of the 55 minutes, as they were on their way out, a couple of the kids turned around and said, that was all right. That was good. Wow. And I thought, 
I'm in now. That's it. I'm not going back to the motor trade. I knew then that I wasn't going back. I knew then that I'd found something that I could excel at, something that I could be good at. It's a lovely story. And I can draw small comparisons with myself. It would be an inset day at my school, maybe, and I was 14, 15, and I'd go with my mum to her school. And I don't know if that would be allowed these days, but <laughs> that's what happened then. And she'd put me on a table with a group of children and I could help them. Yeah. And the feeling that I got from that, and I wasn't their teacher and I, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing really, but one child at a time, I could make a difference. Yeah. And the feeling I got, I just felt a hundred meters tall and I went home with a huge smile on my face and I almost wanted to be an insect the next day so I could go back and do some more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's, it's amazing how you go from car mechanic and then, five minutes or 55 minutes with some children and, and you're hooked and that's it. It was, it was that, it was that easy really. I was, I was absolutely hooked. I was, and I'm, I'm still hooked now, you know, that was nearly 40 years ago. And yeah. Yeah. I'm still hooked now. Why is it that makes teaching so compelling? Cause mm. it is, I've compared it to many things. I mean, for a start, it's a vocation. Yeah. Right. And when I was younger, I thought that because I thought that's a cheap way of making sure that you don't have to give us a pay rise. Just call it a vocation <laughs> and you can pay it cheap. And that was the angsty side of the younger me coming out. It's definitely a vocation. Um, there's no doubt about it. You you don't get paid for the amount of time, effort and energy you have mm -hmm. to put into it if you're going to be the best that you can be. It's also a little bit like being a stand-up comic in as much as you, you're on stage five, seven times a day with a different audience every time and you've got to crack it every time you've got to you've got to get that audience doing what you, going where you want them to go doing what you want them to do and then as you get better at it you mm -hmm. actually get the crowd interaction as mm -hmm. well and you allow more of the kids to come into the lesson and you you don't have to control it so much you can let it go um and I've, i i mean it still intrigues me now you know is it science or is it art it's a little bit of both um but it's it's when you get it right and you've got a class that are all busy and are all loving what they're doing and you've got nothing to do, which doesn't happen very often, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But when it does, I remember those moments and you just stand back and you look at it and you just think, this is cracking. This is absolutely, look at them all. They're all busy. They all love what they're doing. They're all learning loads. It's so interesting that you have drawn that, um, those reflections from teaching secondary design and technology. And as you're talking, in my head, I'm imagining a year one phonics lesson that I've taught and exactly the same things are happening, exactly the same endorphins are, are yeah. racing through our body. And it, it makes me think, when, when you're a teacher, you almost feel like you haven't got any of those transferable skills that we were talking about. And I don't know where that comes from. You feel like, oh, I'm a teacher now, I'm a teacher for life. And we've got so many transferable skills yeah. in those professions maybe into stand-up comedy because it, I, I'm ex I agree with you completely at that. You're in front of the children, you're performing, aren't you? Yeah. And I think at the start of, uh, at the start of my career, I was teaching, I was very heavily planned. I had almost every minute of the lesson planned out. And then there gets to a point for me, probably four or five years in where I started stopping teaching and leading and I was just facilitating mm. and I'd allowed the children to be part of the lesson they could lead their learning where they were going and mm. that was just allowing that to happen and that was it was a wonderful moment mm. and it, it made me think oh, I'm so glad I stuck at this because we do have a retention issue in teaching don't we there's we lots do. of people who come and do two or three or four years and I think it was just at that four-year point for me where I really started to love it and it wasn't 
hard, hard work because at the start it is. It's oh yes, hard, it's, hard uh, work. At, a, in a, at the beginning, you wonder if you're ever going to get it. Yeah, know? and it's like uh, you know the, the comedy thing. We can overplay this, but I would imagine if you do a gig as a comedian and you and you bum, you know about it mm -hmm. and you relive that in your head forevermore. It's the same with a bad lesson. You know, when you, and sometimes some of the best prepared lessons are the stinkers, yeah. you know, because you realize 10 minutes into it, they're not going there. They don't get it. They're not, they're, it just doesn't work. And you've just got to scrap all that. Yeah. And you've got to go by your wits and you've got to work out where you're going to go and whatever. And I've come out of 50 minutes, our lessons and thought that was, you're the worst teacher in the world. <laughs> you, you were awful at this. And then there are other lessons where I've come out feeling like a king. Do you feel like there are... This is an interesting paradox for me, that we have teachers who get into teaching because they love teaching and they're very good at teaching. And it seems like sometimes the better you are at teaching, the less you teach. True. Um, and then you start leading more. And as a teacher, I've had no training in leading at all, but I'm in this leadership position and I've got three or four people that I'm now managing. Yeah. Um, it seems to me like you were a leader from the start who happened to be also very good at teaching. Leadership's one of those other things that, that intrigues me. I, you know, I, I've got, if you came home and looked at my office, it's just full of leadership books because I just consume them um, because there's a knack to it and I ain't got it yet. I'm still working on it. Um, I played a lot of football um, right the way through my life and, and, and I wasn't the most brilliant footballer. For the standard that I was playing, I was probably one of the worst on the team. But I was a good captain. Um, I knew how to captain on the pitch. I knew how to organise, how to pick the right players, how to organise, how to motivate. You know, anybody that, that was shouting at somebody else on the pitch because they'd made a mistake was dropped the following week. Mm. It was like, you're out. If you ain't got anything positive to say, say nothing. Um, so I knew that I could lead in that respect, but I didn't know if I could do it in a work context. Um, and then, like, I had the opportunity, and as I said, there were there were... There were two, there were three of us in the department, um, and I was the youngest of the three, and that was quite tricky coming in because at first it was like, oh god, they're years older than me, mm. with loads of experience, and I'm leading them somehow. But we we knitted really tight, and I think that's really important mm. that ability to bond people. And it was a it was a faculty then that I looked after, so we had textiles, we had food, we had a whole lot going mm -hmm, on in there. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a bigger staff that I was looking after, and, and, and again, that, that worked really well as well. How would you describe that style? Because I totally agree, relationships are the keystone, aren't they, to forming that, that good team? Yeah. What, but people have different leadership styles. What was your style? Um, what you see is what you get, basically. There is no uh, coat that you put on that's your leadership coat that you mm -hmm. walk in with and you think, right, well, I must act this way. It's... Um, being a leader is an extension of being me and I will make mistakes and I'll get things wrong and if you think I'm talking rubbish then tell me um, honesty integrity and sort of just being open with people I think is really really important and has worked for me in most circumstances I have met circumstances where that honesty and that openness has been thrown back at you Okay, and then you think okay well where are they coming from and how do I find a way in? And 
I think as I've got older, I found that you can't find a way in with everybody. You know, there are going to be some people that will just put the barriers up and won't let you in. They'll say, no, you I, I don't want to go there. I'm not interested in you. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in you connecting with me. Um, I had one teacher once in a quite imp important role as well. The first time I ever spoke with her, uh, I said, look, you know, my job is to help you to become the best that you can be. What can I do to help you? And she said, that's none of your business. Wow. So I thought, well, I know where I start with that one. Then. Um, so you're not you're not going to win everybody over, but and also you find that sometimes and I don't I don't mind saying when I went into the the association, the Designer Technology Association, I think they'd had a very autocratic style of leadership beforehand, mm -hmm. and I don't I don't lead like that. So it's like, okay, we need to talk about this. You need to come up with ideas. And I think they knew, I, I think they thought I didn't have a clue what I was doing for the first six, seven months. Mm -hmm. And it was after that then, they thought, oh, well, this is the way he does it. He asks you for your opinion and he listens. And then if he's a, if he thinks there's a good bit there, he'll grab it. If he doesn't like it, he'll tell you and we'll move on. And then um, it takes a while for people to get used to it sometimes. And for a while, they're looking at you thinking, does he really know what he's doing? Is he, mm. is he asking me because he doesn't know himself? Um, but I can't do it from a dictatorial position. Mm -hmm. I can. So I can't. I can. I can be that if I need to be. But I don't like doing that. I mm. don't like it's not, it's, it's, it's not my default. So there's two things there that I think are really interesting. One of them that we can't win all the battles. Yeah. I can see already that you're the type of person who likes to be liked. That, that's Yeah, uh, we all do, don't we? Yeah, we want that, don't <laughs> we? We want that affirmation from life. But there are some people who are going to put the barriers up. Yeah. And, and that's fine, and we could just identify that, and that we don't have to continue down that route with those people. When I was younger, I used to see that as a challenge, and it was like, right, I'm going to win these buggers over. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm so damn charismatic that I can win them <laughs> over. You know, how arrogant is that? Um, but but you, you sort of learn through wisdom that there are some people that are just, for whatever reason, they might have been damaged by somebody earlier down the line mm -hmm. that is, mm -hmm. they've given their trust to that's absolutely abused that. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's gone on before, and you can't judge it. You just realise that... I ain't going to get there. It doesn't matter how many hours I put into it. And you've got a straight choice then. You either keep them on board because they do what they do really well or you shuffle them off, mm. one or the other. Where do you think transparency fits then? Because I'm sometimes I'm of the opinion, well, let's all just be completely 100% transparent and everyone knows where they fit. But then you meet these bumps in the road or this person who doesn't quite fit that model mm. and then you can get into deep water suddenly. Yeah, you've got to read the situation. Transparency is, um, you'd like to be open. I'd like to be open all the mm. time. But there are some situations that you look at and you think, well, actually, I've got to keep my cards a little bit closer to my chest at this time. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a time where I can reveal them bit by bit, but now is not the time. Now is basically that's where we need to go and that's what what we need to do. Can you give an example of that in a in a school setting where maybe where you've been really transparent at, at one point and a time where you thought, I need to let this go little bit by little bit. Um, trying to think now because there's about 15 rattling through my head. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess my, my, my second headship when I took it on was a challenging headship. You know, it was, it was one that a lot of people would have walked away from. Mm -hmm. um, and it had been a school that had been satisfactory, which like, doesn't exist now, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it had been satisfactory for a long, long time. And it needed to change. 
and it was heart that drew me in, not head to mm -hmm. that job. It was heart because it was the school that I should have gone to with all my mates when I was a kid. Wow. Um, it was a school that my mum was a cleaner at for about eight years and used to get up at four o'clock every morning to go and clean the place. So I was emotionally invested in that place, hugely. Yeah. Um, and when I went in, I looked around and thought, right, you've got to be really careful here how you play this because there are people here that have been here a long time mm -hmm. and you can't go into a situation like that and say this school has actually got no ambition because those people are part of that fabric. They've been there a long, long time yeah. and they have. They have got ambition. It's just never been allowed to come out and shine. Um, so I had to keep... I had to keep a lot of that stuff very close to my chest and then reveal it bit by bit. And then people look on you as a leader to, sh I hate the word vision, because I think vision makes it sound like, you know, it's like lights coming from above mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. And, and like you've got something that other people could never get, which is nonsense. Mm -hmm. Vision's clarity to me. It's like, that's where we're going. That's that's where we, and like people have to agree with that because otherwise they're not gonna go there. So it's like, it's like pointing at something up a hill and saying, we're gonna walk up there. And if they can't see it and they can't believe that they can actually make the journey, they're not going to join you on that walk. So you need to actually show it, demonstrate it, talk it through, get their opinion on it, and then you take the first step, then the second step, then the third step. And then before you know where you are, you, you're halfway there. And when you're halfway there, they then start to say, well, we could perhaps do it this way. Could mm -hmm. we do it that way? And then you can start to reveal a little bit more. But in that situation, it was... I probably learnt more from that school than I learnt from any other job that I've ever had in my life. Because, Highs and lows. Because it was a tricky team, because it was a, I think I heard you describe it as a, a beaten team when you got there. Who... Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's a difficult, that's a difficult because, it, it, you know, you're talking about people here and, mm -hmm. and, and, and kids and, and teachers and, and not everyone was beaten. Mm -hmm. and, and, and some of them would, would violently hate that statement. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I wasn't beaten, I was never beaten. Um, and, and they're probably right. Um, but the vibe in the place wasn't right. The vibe mm -hmm. in the place wasn't going to take the organisation forward. Um, and we did really well. We did very, very well. We got it to top end good uh, on Ofsted. And, I, uh, and let, let's put Ofsted in context. You know, that's a moment in time. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a, but we knew we were top end good. We knew that the school was now buzzing. It was in a really good place. The kids wanted to be there. Um, it was a violent place at one stage and it had stopped being a violent place. The mm -hmm. kids actually weren't doing that as often because of the backgrounds that they had, it, it used to come occasionally, mm -hmm. but we'd, we'd got that under control. Um, and then we had that Ofsted, we pushed on from there and then uh, budget got cut. Mm -hmm. We had to cut stuff, like budget was cut quite heavily and we had to lose 200 grand, um, 200 grand, means you've basically got to lose some pretty expensive, highly paid staff. Mm -hmm. So it was voluntary redundancy, but once you open that sort of situation up, everybody thinks it's me. Yeah. So everybody starts getting defensive and the buzz that we'd built died in seconds. And I, I must admit the pressure I was under at that stage was huge as well. And I learned a lot about pressure. Um, I coped with some of it. Um, and then there was some of it that I didn't cope with and I made some mistakes as well. And when you look back on the mistakes and you look at the mistakes you made, you think, well, actually that was a bad time to make that mistake because everyone was looking to you. 
and was looking to you to point the way forward. Mm -hmm. And actually that mistake sort of showed that you were under a bit of pressure. So I learned so much from that job. So much. How did you cope? Did you have an advocate that you were talking through with? Was it self-reflection? If I if if I'd been if I was in that position now, I would make sure I had a coach. Mm. I mean, I've got a coach now for the job that I do now um, through Vistage. Um, that's where it started, anyway. And you need that as a leader because you need sometimes to be able to talk through the problems with somebody that's outside the organization and not invested in the organization, but is invested in you and is able to say to you, oh, have you thought of this? Why are you doing it that way? Why, why are you not doing it that way? You, know, get, you could do it differently. Why, why don't you do that? And I, I never had that as a, as a, a school leader. Um, and I, and I, I know a lot of heads now that do, which is a good thing. Um, no, I, I, I basically, at, at that stage when it got really tricky, it was me. And I was trying to do it myself. I, mm -hmm. I, I had coping mechanisms for it because I was reading books and I thought I was coping with it. I wasn't, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, when I look back, actually the pressure was huge. Um, I was taking it home too much. Uh, my wife is just amazing <laughs> and she takes all manner of stuff over the years. But she said to me, you've got to stop taking it home. She said, you, you know, you're coming home every night and you're offloading on me, which is actually bringing me down as well. She said, you've, got, you've just got to stop it. So I, 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 my coping mechanism, which sounds weird, was I had a lamppost that was halfway home or just under halfway home. Yep. And whatever nonsense had gone on during the day and like I said, you know, nonsense, whatever it was that was troubling me, yep. I would drop it at this lamppost metaphorically. It would be like, right, I'm going to leave that there because that'll be there in the morning and I can pick it up on the way in. And it worked. That worked to yeah. a certain extent. Um, and, and I could drive home then and I could forget about it. And then on the way in in the morning, it was really weird. But as I drove to this lamppost, it sort of burdened itself back on me again. <laughs> it was like the monkeys jumped back on again. And then yeah. I went in and took it in and went with it there. So that really worked. But when I look back, I put on nearly three stone in weight. Wow. Um, I was self-medicating by drinking too much. Mm -hmm. I wasn't an alcoholic by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a glass of wine every night as soon as I got in, mm -hmm. which was my way of, of, of chilling out. Uh, I wasn't exercising. Um, and I was just work, 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 work. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that. You can do that for a short period of time. You can't sustain it. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah, I eventually reached the decision where I thought, no, that's enough for me. I've got to get away. I've got to stop. Didn't know what I was going to do next. Uh, I just thought I just want to headship. I think I'm done with headship. Mm. Um, left it, and God bless my wife. I got home and said to her, Look, I've, I've resigned. Um, and, and her response was, thank God for that. It, Lovely. Know, she knew six months before that that's where it should go. <laughs> they do, don't they? They know. But she, she'd, not, she'd, not, uh, she'd not said it ever because it needed to come from me. Yeah. It needed to be my decision. If I just take you back for a second to, to the mistakes, how far into the mistake did you re were you before you realised it was a mistake? Some of the actions that I took were actions that wouldn't have been taken. I'll give you an example in a minute. Wouldn't have been taken had there been a senior team that had been united around me that I could have actually shared around the table. Okay. 
but you're isolated at this stage because everyone's thinking he's going to get rid of me. I'm, I'm going to be the next one that goes. I don't want to go at the moment. So you're, you're pretty isolated mm. at that stage. And there were some roles that had to go. And there were some people that weren't brilliant at what they did in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had to force a couple of people out. Um, where I made the mistakes was there's a way to do that and allow people to leave with dignity. Mm-hmm. And one or two of the people that left, I think, in the pace and the pressure of everything, I don't think I allowed them to leave with dignity. And that really concerns me to this day, Mm -hmm. because that's not me. That's not what I do. I was acting under pressure, and acting under pressure, I thought I was doing the right thing, I was doing the wrong thing. Um, I would never do that again. If that was me now, um, I don't think I'd allow myself to get in that position, Mm because I think I would see it coming and I would address it. Um, but also, a la- you know, if people have got to go, they've got to go. Mm. If you've got to go, there's a way for them to go with their head held high. And, and um, yeah, I, I regret now that one or two people left in under a bit of a cloud. I can see that. I can see it in your, the body language mm. and demeanour, yeah, that it stays with you. Yeah, it does. It, it's another thing that really interests me about head teachers that, again, we train as teachers, we are good teachers. Then we go into leadership positions with very little training. Then we become head teachers and we have to manage budgets and finance. Yeah, and yeah. we've not got a, a, a finance background or an accountancy background, but we're, we're left with doing that. Can you tell me a bit about your, um, was it a, a morning club, a breakfast club that you had and you'd put some funding into that um, around this difficult time? Yeah, it was, where the, it was where the situation got to is that we had to lose this £200,000 and we had to lose it fairly quick as well because uh, the changes had been made pretty ad- abruptly by mm. government without it being announced. So it was like, we've got to lose this money quickly. Um, now, we had, um, we had about a third of our population in the school was socially deprived their background. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them weren't fed properly. Uh, you know, and, and and some of the ones that were in most trouble in school during the course of the day weren't be eating properly. They were eating junk food, mm-hmm. basically. I think it's a fallacy to say that kids weren't eating anything because they'd always find a few quid to get a Mars bar and a can of Coke on the way in, but that's that would be their breakfast. So we started a breakfast club, um, which cost about £25,000 for the course of the year. And it made such a difference because as long as you were there by a certain time in the morning, which meant you had to be early, which these kids never were, by the way. Um, then you got a free cooked breakfast, and you got, you know, a, a hot chocolate and an orange juice, and you could sit down. And we made it that staff would could have that as well, uh, free. Lovely. But if you were a member of staff and you were having that, you were availing yourself to that free breakfast. You couldn't grab it and run back to the staff room. You had to sit with the kids and eat yeah. with the kids. Um, and it was a great thing. And some of the kids that were in there, you looked around, I looked around some mornings and I thought, blimey, everybody who is in trouble in the school at the moment is in this hall <laughs> having breakfast. And they would tell you stuff over those breakfasts that they would never tell you otherwise about, about the school and about what was happening outside the school and mm. all sorts of stuff. So there's no way I was going to lose it. But it was put to me by um, a member of staff one day that, if we lost the breakfast club, we could save somebody's job. Mm. And that's the sort of dilemmas that you get put in front of you as a head teacher. It's like, and, and like, you then have got to come back to, well, why am I here? Am I here to save somebody's job or am I here to do what's best for the kids? I'm here to do what's best for the kids. And actually that breakfast club is an essential part of that. So it stays. 
And if that means that a job's got to go, a job's got to go. So that was the decision I took. It wasn't a very popular decision with some of the staff, but it was a decision I took. Wow. I still think that was the right decision, by the way. So as the head teacher, are you looking down on 1,300 little Tony Ryans wanting the best for them because you didn't have an enjoyable time at school? Was that your motivation? That's driven me right away through my career is that I didn't want any student to come to school and feel like I felt at school. Hmm. Also, if you look at it, the more you read into it and the more research you do and the more reading you do, unless kids are emotionally comfortable where they are, they're not going to perform at their best. So, and some of these kids were, they lived on, uh, I don't want to make this sound like it's, it's like sort of the Bronx or whatever, but mm -hmm. they lived in pretty rough yeah. parts of London where there were gangs and there was gang culture and there was drugs and there was uh, parents that were alcoholics and there was lots going on, lots mm -hmm. going on. I wanted them to be able to drop all of that at the door because most of the kids wanted to drop that at the door. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that they wanted to bring this in and be a gang leader in school is complete and utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. What they wanted to do was get away from all that rubbish and, and drop it. So you have to make the school a safe place that when they walk in, they can just put their shoulders down and relax. Mm -hmm. And for a short while, while they're in school, they're safe, they're comfortable, they're fed, they're at home, their opinion counts. And this sounds like utopia, but you can create it. You can yeah, make, yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. have got that power as a head teacher to create this, this atmosphere where most students feel like it's their school and they like it and they're proud of it. Um, and that takes time. That doesn't come overnight. But mm. I firmly believe now that you have to do that to get the best out of kids. I feel very fortunate in my job. I get to go to lots of schools and there's a, a school in inner city Leeds that I've been to. And I met the head teacher. She asked me to come. 20 past seven in the morning before the children and she stands outside um, every morning and she welcomes every child into the school yeah. and I stood and welcomed them in and that was a lovely experience and they go into a breakfast club yeah. um, and, they, and, and there's breakfast available for them there and then they have year group assemblies and as part of this year group assembly they do uh, retrieval tasks and, and things related to English and maths and science and the other subjects but then what I could see really blatantly happening was the staff there were telling the children, you are valued here. This is a place where you are safe mm. and we care about you and we want the best for you. And not only that, but if you work with us, you can go to mm. university, you can go to college, you can have that job that you want. And it made me reflect and think, nobody ever told me that when I was young, but they didn't need to because... I, it was an assumed thing for me. Yeah. I thought everybody went to primary school, they went to secondary school, they went to college and they went to university. That's what everybody did. But these children, they don't have that. They don't have that subconscious influence from their parents. They may be told the exact opposite. <coughs> there are so many kids that they, they, they don't get that from parents. The parents uh, are not engaged in that way. Or a lot of the parents wouldn't come into school, mm -hmm. just refused because they'd had a bad experience at school themselves. And they weren't confident enough to come over the threshold yeah. and come in because they felt that the teachers were going to tell them how bad their kids were. <laughs> so they never came in. So these kids knew they were on their own. Um, so, yeah, you've got to say it over and over again. You need about eight positives to every negative, and they get plenty mm. of negatives when they go home at night. So yeah. you need to really lash it on. But at the same time, you've got to have um, – there's got to be boundaries. There's got to be non-negotiables where it's like, you know, 
I'm sorry, that's not... And, like, bullying for me was one. Mm-hmm. And I said to... I, I used to say to the kids regularly at assembly, you know, if you want to find the line with me, just bully somebody and see how quickly I act because you'll be out of here, your feet won't touch the ground. I'm not having bullies in this school. Mm-hmm. I'm just not having it because I was there. I, I, I know what it feels like. I know what it comes in. It's like going over a humpback bridge at 90 mile an hour. Your stomach goes... You just don't want to be there. It's horrible. I didn't want any student to experience that. Didn't want anyone mm-hmm. to do that. Um, and also violence. You know, mm-hmm. smacking someone is never the answer. Um, yet in their world, it was. Mm-hmm. They'd seen their dad do it. They they'd seen it happen regularly. I remember. I, I knew we were getting somewhere when we had one kid that he got excluded so many times for violence because he just when he was put in a corner, he would come out fighting. Yep. And he fought this day in the playground and he ended up in my office as head. And he walked in and as he walked in, he went, I know, I know, I know, violence is never the answer. I should have walked away. I wasn't big enough to do it. You're going to have to exclude me. I'm probably going to have to be out for three or four days. It's my fault. I need to get it right. And he meant it. And I thought, we're getting somewhere. Mm -hmm. We're actually getting somewhere. He's joined up now that he should have walked away from that. And then I sat down and we used to sit him in the office and I said, why didn't you walk away from that? He said, it, it takes more to walk away than it does to thump someone. Mm-hmm. It, it, I had to be bigger to walk away and I wasn't big enough this time, his words. And that was wow. a 14-year-old that came from a pretty violent upbringing. Um, so you can get through, but you've got to work so hard at it. Coming to a, a more positive spin on uh, on education and your time in education i believe you've had experiences where you've um, met pupils who you've taught in the past and they've kind of stopped you and said you taught me design and technology and it was a positive experience yeah it was was, that was that was one of those mr chip moments where you Mm. you, you're in and like um, mum was uh, she had uh, heart bypass and she was in intensive care and Mm. she was touch and go whether she'd come out or not. And uh, the nurse that was looking after mum kept looking at me, you know, and she, she'd be doing something with the pipes and drains and God knows what that was going in and out of mum. And then she'd look back at me and then do a little bit more and then look back at me again. And even my brother noticed it and he said, what's going on there? What's, what's? Mm. I said, I don't know. She's going to tell us something in a minute. I don't know what's going on. And she came over and she went, Mr. Ryan, yeah. She taught me design and technology. She said, one of the reasons I'm doing what I'm doing now is because some of the things you told me at school and she said, you know, I'm here with all this high tech stuff. I would have been freaked out by this years ago, but you taught me not to be freaked out by it. And here I am, I'm looking up. So she said, she winked at me and said, I'll look after you, mum. And uh, mum walked away from that one. So it's all good. It's, it's a lovely story and to have that influence. And that's not why we are teachers, because no. we want a, an intensive care nurse to look after our mum, but it really shows, doesn't it, the value of teaching and how you go home and you drop your burden at the lamppost on the way home and the children are going home and they're taking burden with them as well mm-hmm. but they're also taking appreciation and they they don't give it us back do they in the daytime you get the odd one who'll say thank you occasionally it's very occasionally if, if you lived for that you you, you wouldn't live very yeah. long because <laughs> you don't get it every day but but you sort of know you know that the student that that meant the most to me over the years. It's really why I feel like I was thinking this coming here. You know, I was thinking, is there one student that really stands out? And there is. 
And she got, she got, um, she had 24, if I remember correctly, foster parents, families. Mm -hmm. And she was 15 years old and wow. she'd had 24 foster parents. And she was in a cycle of, um, she didn't like herself. And she 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 thought that she was not worthy of of respect and love. Um, so what she would do is she would get into a foster home and she would push the boundaries and push the boundaries until the foster parents, who were really well intentioned, I'm sure, just said, "I can't cope with this anymore." Mm -hmm. And then they'd con contact the authorities, and she'd be moved on. And she'd go, "I told you I was rubbish. Mm. It's happened again, isn't it? I told you I was rubbish." And she'd force it. And she'd do this at school. She'd tell teachers to f off on a regular basis. And that's the dilemma that you end up in as a, a head sometimes as well, because if I've been told to F off as a teacher, I want the school to act. Mm -hmm. And they wanted me to exclude her, whether that's temporarily or permanently. Now, where she came from, I knew that if I excluded her, she was out on the streets and she was probably going to be on drugs and possibly going to be worse. Mm. So I didn't want to exclude her because I knew she wasn't going to go into a safe house. I didn't. I knew that's where, where she wasn't going to go. So I didn't always exclude her, but you can't always tell a teacher that, that's but at the end of that, exactly why you're acting the way you're acting. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really, really difficult to manage, but we kept her in school. And I remember she was in my office at one stage and I turned around and I said to her, I'm not going to exclude you, you know that, don't you? And she said, well, you know, if I tell enough teachers to F off, you'll have to. And I just said, well, I'm not going to. That's it. You can tell me to F off. You can tell whoever you like to F off. It ain't happening. You're staying here. You're going to do well. And she did. And she ended, she ended up with qualifications. She's a midwife now. Um, so she got her way through. She, she, she did it. I, I just refused to give up on her because you could see that this was she was, a, she was a victim of circumstance. Yeah. And you just had to try and break the loop, but you haven't always got time to break that loop because it takes endurance. It really does take mm -hmm. endurance. It wasn't just me that did it either. She had four or five teachers that she could check in with on a daily basis who knew where she was and where she had got emotional support. And, and that's what got her through. What advice would you give to, uh, to a new teacher these days? Wow, that's, that's, that's really hard. Um, don't try and be somebody you're not because the kids will sniff it. Mm -hmm. They'll sniff it within seconds. They know, they, know, they sense fear. Mm -hmm. So if you stand at the front and you're petrified, they'll know. <laughs> um, if you stand at the front and you're honest with them, they'll respect that. Most of them will. We want one or two that will try and abuse that. It's going back to what we said earlier. If, you, if you're your real authentic self, you risk that being thrown back at you. But if you are your real authentic self, most of the kids will actually buy into that and will like that. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think the other bit of advice I would give looking back, my son nearly did primary teaching. He did the training and he got to a point and he just said, Dad, I've lost my life. Mm -hmm. I'm working in the evenings, I'm working at weekends, I don't know if I can do this forever. I said, well, you haven't got to. If you don't like it, walk away from it. And he did. He's in marketing now and he loves it. Um, but the, the other bit of advice I would give is draw a line somewhere between when when the school day finishes and when your time becomes your time mm -hmm. because that can cloud so easily and the job is never done. Never, never done. done. doesn't matter. You put you could put 22 hours a day into it for seven days mm -hmm. a week. There'll always be stuff that is unfinished. Yeah. So at some stage, just say, right, six o'clock, that's me done. 
I'm finished now. There will be exceptions. You know, you've got this going on at school and you've got whatever. There will be exceptions. But in the main, try and stick to that. And also make sure that you don't give up what you love outside of school. You mm-hmm. know, exercise, football, sport, theatre, whatever it might be, arts. Make sure that you're keeping that because that is important to feed you in order mm-hmm. to enable you to stand in front of kids and actually be nourished and be be. Be, be alive and be be fresh. I, I couldn't agree more. And finding that cut-off time is so, so difficult. Yeah. And I do think there are more staff teams talking about well-being <coughs> and, and the ability to to allow staff, just making sensible choices about marking and feedback policies and mm. the little things like that. But it's not only a, a, a physical workload cut-off time, but also a mental cut-off. Bec- that was the thing I found the hardest, was that, I can't stop thinking about the children that are in my class. Yeah. I can't stop thinking about the children that are in my school that I'm having an impact on. And I think about them in the evenings and I think about them at the weekends. And that's why sport was so good for me because I step over the line and onto the rugby pitch, the football pitch, the cricket pitch. And there was no point in thinking about anything else yeah. because I was focusing on the game and that was an escape for me. And then you come off and you have a shower and then you're back into, oh, I've got that planning to do for later. I've got that resourcing to do for later. So your journey, car mechanic, um, into being a, a DT teacher, then into leadership positions, head teacher, head teacher, free school. And then now we come to the Design and Technology Association. The best bit was I was asked by a local authority if I would do some, um, I guess you'd call it coaching really, but it was, it, was, it was mentoring really of primary school heads who were generally quite young. And they'd done what you said, they'd been good at teaching, so they found themselves, oh, blimey, I'm head teacher now, and now, now I've got all these problems going on. And some of them had massive problems going on with drugs and with social aspects outside of school. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to solve it all. They were trying to do it all themselves without delegating any of it out. And you could see if they carried on like they were, they were going three, four years, they'd be burnt out, mm-hmm. they'd be finished. Mm-hmm. So it was trying to get them to think differently about the job. And there's lots of lots of listening going on, which I'm, I'm I, I, I I trained myself to be a very good listener. You know, the idea in those in, in those interviews, I used to have an hour a week with most of them. And you'd sit down, it was quite often it rolled over the hour by a long mm-hmm. way. But you'd sit down after school and you'd just say, okay, what are the problems? And they would roll it out mm-hmm. and they would come out of it and it's like, and what have you done and how have you managed that? And by asking the right questions, you could get them to solve and think it through in a different way without you going in. Because there's no way I could go in with solutions. Mm-hmm. You have to go in and make them think differently. That's all. But I really enjoyed that. I had no, I was happy. I could play golf on a Wednesday afternoon if I wanted to <laughs> for the first time in a long, long time. I didn't have to wait for a bell to go to the toilet. You know, I could go to the toilet when I wanted to. It was, it was wonderful. And then I got a call from an agency who, who said, look, the Design and Technology Association are looking for a CEO. Would you be interested? And I said, no, I'm really happy where I am. Um, I'm doing some work, self-employed. I'm not interested. And they said, well, let's just send you the stuff and have a look at it. And I said, no, I don't even want to read it because if I read it, my heart will tug me in because mm-hmm. I love the subject. I don't even want to read it. And then they came back about six weeks later. So they said, yes, originally. They said, okay, fair enough. About six weeks later, they came back and they said, look, they haven't appointed yet and they just really want to talk to you. Would you take this stuff and have a look at it? I said, well, you can send it to me, but I'm telling you now, I'm not applying. Um, and once I, once it arrived, I was done for. Um, <laughs> it was um, it was just the subject that 
that brought me into teaching. It's a subject that I love. Um, it's a subject that I think kids can gain so much from. Um, and it's dying. We've gone from a position where we had 430,000 entries at GCSE, mm -hmm. early 2000s. Uh, last year was 78,000. So, and it's probably about 20, 25% of schools at the moment are not offering it at GCSE at all. Um, and the reasons for that is not because the kids don't want to do it. Quite often there's students there that really want to do it. They can't find the right teachers because there's a real shortage of teachers because we've not invested enough in bringing teachers through with D&T training. Um, and it's also expensive, you know, compared to, let's say, geography. Mm -hmm. It's about four to five times more expensive than geography, or it can be. So head teachers are looking at it and saying, well, we don't have to do it. EBAC's not insisting that we do it. Our school measure is not going to be hit hard if we don't do it. So therefore, let's just drop it. So it's in danger of disappearing off the curriculum. And I thought, well, that's a challenge that I just can't say no to. So let's let's take that on and see if we can if we can turn that situation around. And what would we lose if design and technology did disappear from our curriculum? What does society lose from that? It goes back to what we said earlier is that we're turning, I, I, this is my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it would be shot down by some people I know, but I think we're turning out kids at the moment that have got their heads full of data, but they haven't been helped to turn that data into information. Mm -hmm. They haven't been helped to think, how is this useful to me? How am I going to use it in my life? Where am I going to apply this? Where am I going to put this to work and make it work for me? How, what jobs could I do that are going to allow me to really use what I've got in my head and go out there? And we're working with employers now, and employers are telling us, well, you know, getting applicants for jobs is no problem whatsoever. What's really tricky is getting people that really understand the job and really can dive in, because we can't afford to spend nine months teaching them how to be team workers, how to be, you know, all mm. the things we said earlier. I think design and technology applies science, it applies maths, it applies thinking, problem solving. Problem solving is what we need. We need kids that are going out here really au fait with their ability to solve complex problems and not put off by it, because it's really easy to reach a tricky, gnarly problem that is not going to be fixed in seconds and just go, oh, it's too hard, sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm not mm -hmm. going to do that. And a lot of kids do do that because they're not put in situations where they they have to do it because it's it's important to, to reach a conclusion. Yeah, the, the immediacy of our society at the moment is, I want to know what the football results are. I flip an app and I've got that. Yeah. I want to know why the Canary Islands are called the Canary Islands. I Google that and it tells me instantly. Everything is instantaneous. Yeah. There's, I want to see something, and YouTube's got it instantly. Yeah. That, and, and to draw a parallel with primary teaching a little bit, I see it in maths lessons all the time that children are taught the fluency elements, and they know their times tables, they can mm. relay their times tables really quickly, perfect. But they, we aren't spending or investing enough time in that problem-solving element. And I know at, at White Rose, some of the training that we do, we, um, there's a quote from Forbes, and they asked businesses, what are the top five things you mm. need? And, the, and it was teamwork, problem solvers, people who can make decisions, yeah. not people who know their timetables. Yeah. yeah. And knowing your timetable is important. Of course. You know, and and, and what, we're, what we've got the balance wrong at the moment. It's all knowledge mm. and there's no application. And 
to go back to your question, what what does DNT do really well? Well, it 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 forces you to apply that knowledge for a, for a reason. It also really works on emotional intelligence, which I think is so important that I think schools gloss over quite often. But that emotional intelligence, that empathy, you have to have that when you're designing, because you're not designing for you. I'm not designing a solution for something that I need. Mm -hmm. I'm designing a solution for something that you need, which means I've got to get inside your head. I've got to work out why this is such a problem for you. And the last bit I would say is empowerment, is that kids realise that my generation has really screwed their world up. Mm-hmm. You know, we've created so many sustainability problems. We're killing wildlife like it's going out of fashion, through either through through climate change or through through physically killing it. Mm-hmm. And they want to be part of that solution, not part of that problem. But they don't know how to get on that on that chain of action that's going to actually allow them to fix this. Sustainability is a huge part of any design problem. The first question you should ask yourself as a designer now is where does it end up? If the answer is landfill, then do we really need it? You know, is there a better way of doing it? Is there another way we can do it? So if you can teach kids that that good design and, and designer technology allows you to get your head inside that space and think, we don't the world doesn't need more stuff, it needs better stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're not gonna fix the problems that we've got now by doing more of the same. We need to do things differently. We need to step back and we need to think differently. And, and that's, that's, I think, what the subject does at its best. It, it did surprise me in researching this podcast about how design and technology had changed since I'd been at school. Mm. So when I was at school, I remember resistant materials. We made a box. We weren't told why we were making a box. No, we were told no. how to make the box. And we did the joints and we glued it together and we all took home a box. And it seems now children are given contexts where, like sustainability mm. and there's a problem. And it's not just, this is how you make a box anymore. No. Is that, has, has the, it's the, changed the subject... exponentially. I mean, it's, it's gone from a subject which fixates on the making process. Now, the making still an essential part of our subject. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to say that we don't make stuff anymore because we do. Um, but you're making stuff for a reason. And you're given where you were, I don't know, uh, let's give you a solid example of how it used to work was, I'm the teacher, I'm pretty good with wood and we've got a mountain of softwood out in the back of the school which we can use, so we ain't got to buy anything in for it. I I could have set the whole year 11 GCSE around everybody making something out of wood. And it would be, okay, make something that is for a purpose, it would all be, oh, I need a coffee table at home or I need a cabinet for this or I need a whatever. And you'd end up with pretty much the same sort of thing, but made out of the same material, but slightly different. You mm-hmm. know? And that was the way the subject was at that stage. And it's gone from there now and you get given a context. So a context could be an aging population. Full stop. Okay. Okay. There's my context. I've got to find a problem somewhere out there that fits that context. I've got to find somebody that's got that problem. I've got to then talk to them, get inside their head and work out what the problem is and how I can solve it through design. There's your empathy you were talking about, understanding, yeah. And I've then got to create at least a prototype, if not an end product, that will fix that. So if I take that scenario a little bit further, you know, as a school up in um, uh, Doncaster, two and a half years ago, just before COVID, and 
they took their whole year 11 group, which wasn't a big group, by the way, but they took them out to a local age concern um, home and they, they introduced the kids to some of the older people and they said, well, you know, we've got this problem. We've got to, an aging population. We've got to design something. What are the things that really give you grief? And these uh, people in the home were, were brilliant and said, you know, I, I want to be independent, but I can't do this or I can't do that. And then they designed little solutions for it and drew them up and they had to talk to them, they had to learn. It's a much, much harder subject than it used to be because you're no longer just making a box. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're now creating a solution and it could be a prototype for something that's quite complex. And it may it may not be a finished solution, but you're going to go maybe 10 iterations through something mm. from a, your first idea through to something that perhaps now might be getting towards something that a manufacturer could make. And you're drawing on science and physics and yeah. maths, everything. And you're hearing problems together. that you don't know the answer to. You know, I, I, mm. I, that thing has got to do that. And that requires me to understand this bit of science, but I don't know that. So I'm going to have to go and find it out. I'm going to have to research that. And you do get kids going to the science department and saying, look, I've got this problem. Help. How do I get my head around that? You know, and physics teachers love that because it's like this is applied yeah. stuff that we're not allowed. We are allowed to do, but we don't have enough time <laughs> to do. But really what we want is kids engaging in the physics and using the physics to solve a problem, which is what they're doing. So at its best... If it were to disappear from the curriculum overnight, let's put it that way, if mm -hmm. it, kids were never to see or have a chance to do it again, where's the next set of designers? Where, where's the next generation of designers going to come from? Everything in this room is designed. From here to that, to my phone, to mm -hmm. the glass case. Who's going to design that? Who's going to, who's going to make that? And we need better design. That's going to get us to a place where we need to be. Who's going to manufacture it? Because we'll have nobody that's going into manufacturing. Where are the next engineers going to come from? Who's going to design the iPhone? Who's going to work out the you know, electronics that go inside it? And if we're not careful, in mainstream it's going down, but in private it's actually becoming more and more popular. Okay. So if we're not careful, we're going to have all our designers will come from a certain small sector of society and they will be designing for a, a client base that they know nothing about. Right. We have to have a, a diverse um, design base and, and and that's why the subject is so important in schools. So in 2009 we had over 400,000 children taking the design and technology GCSE and that's dipped considerably now to 78,000 I think you said. Earlier. It was 2003 we had 430,000, 436. Um, it's dipped now to 78 and it's dipping at a rate of about 5 to 7% per year. And then we look into industry and there's a real shortage of massive, design. Massive. So supply and demand, we, you yeah. know, we should be crying out for these these yeah. people, but we're, they we're dipping and dipping and dipping. If you don't get into early primary school students and show them that an engineer is all of this breadth of things because mm -hmm. what they think it is is somebody in overalls covered in grease. <laughs> I don't want to do that job. Thank you very much. I'm going to move away from it. Uh, you have to show them the real breadth of it um, if you're going to keep them. But... Also, of that 12%, less than 8% come from a black um, or diverse uh, socioeconomic, uh, sorry, ethnic background. So we're using, I mean, you know, we've got this massive um, gulf of skill sets, but we're only tapping into a very small percentage of the population to solve that problem. You know, we, we, we have to solve why women are not going into engineering, manufacturing, design. We have to solve 
what are the barriers that are stopping them from wanting to do that? Because they're great jobs. Mm -hmm. They're fantastic jobs. Partly it's because they don't know what's there. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they can't see. You know, that, that old mantra that, you know, you can't be what you can't see. There's a hell of a lot of truth in that. You have to see it. You have to see, and you have to see somebody that looks like you. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm desperate on my podcast to, to make sure that we show um, people like uh, Ella Podmore that works for McLaren, um, you know, did material science at Manchester and is working for McLaren now, but actually challenged the people, the leadership at McLaren and said, you haven't got a material scientist on your team. You really need me. And, and you know that's a, that's very ballsy for a yeah. 22, 23 year yeah. old. And they said, "Well, why do we need you?" She said, "Well, I can make your car 20 grams lighter. I can make it 40 grams lighter. That's what you want. I uh -huh. can do it, and I can test those materials, and I can do that." So they gave her a job. I did a PGCE. It was 10 months. I, we did <clears throat> half a day on design and technology. Yeah, and that was it. Yeah, and I go into primary schools, and design and technology is neglected in primary schools. I believe. And then you go and the, into a couple and majority of teachers in primary are female. And there's a couple of female teachers in the reception in the early years and they've got the saws out and the children are cutting wood. And the other people go in and think, whoa, you can't let four and five year olds loose with saws. They'll be chopping each other's arms off. Have any arms been chopped off? No arms have been chopped off. Do the children learn to respect the tools? They, they respect the tools. And no, they're not making boxes because that's what I did at GCSE, mm. so that's fine but they are getting interested in design and technology. And when they're four and five years old, they're not interested in whether this is a, a male subject or a female subject. They're not interested in, no. oh, is there a role model who's, who's a man who's got grease all up him? They're just enjoying is having a go at stuff. Yeah. yeah, and it's fun. And they're also being led by fem female teachers sometimes. Mm. And they're thinking, oh yeah, she can do that, I can do that. So the curriculum needs changing. The curriculum needs adapting. and. Quite often, we're stuck into a cycle which is dictated by the timetable. So you've got six weeks in food, then you've got six weeks in the workshop, then you've got six weeks in textiles. So we have a textiles project which lasts six weeks, and it's all focused on at the end of it, we'll have a cushion. And then we have a food project that at the end of it, we'll have this dish and that dish. Yeah. And then we have a resistant materials, and at the end of it, we'll have a pencil case. Mm. You need to stop and ask why. Why do we need to learn how to make a cushion? Why are we learning how to make a pencil case? Well, I'm teaching them dovetail joints. Do they need to know how to make dovetail joints? They do for the exam. Great. Show them how to make one. They now know how to make a dovetail mm -hmm. joint. They don't need to spend six weeks making a pencil case. This sounds really easy and it's not. Well, I know it's not. So I don't want anyone watching this to think, oh, it's right for him to say that, but he ain't got to do it. And I, I understand <laughs> that. Um, I always used to say to teachers at Key Stage 3 in my schools when I was head, your job from 11 to 14 is to make them love your subject. Give them as much information as you can. Contextually link that where you can to stuff that's going on out there in the world. But by the age of 14, when they've got to choose what subjects they're going to take, I want those kids to have the bugger of all choices because they don't want to drop anything because they love everything. I don't want them saying, oh, I hate geography, I've always hated it, I want to drop it. I don't want to do D&T because it's always been nonsense, I don't want to take it. So, and if you don't do that by focusing on the exam, you focus on what's important to make the kids love and understand and really engage with that subject. So we have got that freedom. And the, the timetable may well be put into six week blocks, 
But that doesn't mean you have to teach the same thing for six weeks. You could teach two, three-week units. You could have a two-week unit and a four-week unit. You could teach one thing very, very quickly, which is a, um, a practical task. You want them to learn how to cut a dovetail joint because they're going to need it later on. Great, two-week task. Bang, bang, bang. There we go. We've done it. Now everybody knows how to do that. Now we move on to something that's contextually led for four weeks. So you can break the curriculum down and you can do it in a way that suits you. We used to do, we used to do when I was at Dartford, we had 240 in a year group and we split that year group in half for the, for the timetable. And we used to just throw them down to D&T. So half a year group would go to D&T, which was a big open space. And the head of design and technology would work out how he wanted to manage those kids within that space. I didn't set that as the timetabler. He set that. That's the ideal situation where you actually think differently and you think, what can we do? How can we do it? Quite often it is dictated by 30 kids need to be in a room. Mm. And, but do they? Is there a way that I can have 15 kids in that room and I can have 45 kids in another room doing something else? Or do, you know, we just need to think and we need to think more creatively with curriculum. I, I had that first hand. I mean, we, we, um, where my school was in West London, Brompton Bikes was just up the road. And uh, I badgered the CEO of Brompton Bikes, Will Butler Adams, and just said, you know, will you come into my school and do a talk? And eventually he got fed up with me, I think, and said, yeah, okay, I'll come in, but uh, when do you want me in? And I just said, well, we normally do it at lunchtime. What time's lunchtime? Great, I'll be there. So we set it up, put some posters around the school, and we said, right, well, he's coming in, he's going to do a talk. Pictures of the bikes up everywhere. He designed this. He says, you know, his company's up the road, makes this. He arrived a little bit late, which I believe is a trait, he told me on, <laughs> on the podcast. Um, I'm panicking because I've got 120 kids in the hall. I didn't know if I, one man and a dog was going to turn up, but 120 kids are in the hall. He's turned up late. He's got his bike. He said, you, is it all right if I go straight in? I thought he was going to fold this thing up and then walk into the hall. He cycled down the middle of the kids, got to the front of them all, folded it into this little piece, put it on the stage and said, I've spent the last 10 years of my life making and selling this. Does anyone want to hear the story? <laughs> he absolutely had them and he he had kids chasing him and the following day I had two boys chasing me down the corridor saying I want to work for him but he told me that I need C in maths at least if I'm going to work for him I'm on D's at the moment how do I get it and these were not academic kids whatsoever mm. so it does work if you can show them what's possible but you need this to get there they will they will work for it incredible just inspiring stories about teachers about children yeah really really lovely just a question that we're asking um all of the guests do you have a, a favorite quote or a favorite piece of research or something that's really really meant a lot to you um, that you there's, two, there's two bits that i brought in i mean there's a, there's a quote from einstein which is being formed being formed by yesterday live in today and be hopeful for tomorrow and i love that because it it, it it is you have to live for today 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 you, you're not going to get another today so live in that moment, enjoy it. Learn from the mistakes that you've made, we've made, society's made in the past. But despite all the stuff that you see on the news at 10 and everything else, if you watch it every night, I've stopped watching it recently because mm -hmm. it is so depressing. There is hope for the future, but we've just got to get our heads in the right places. We've got to actually make the right, you know, all the tools are there that we need to make the change that we need to make. We just need to press the leaders to make the right decisions and we need to be informed to do that. So 
Einstein knew what he was talking about. He, he, you know, he, he, go far that lead. <laughs> um, the other, the other, the other book is is um, Guy Claxton, um, which you needed sometimes as a as a head teacher, you get so wrapped up in the job that you sometimes forget what the drivers are for the job in the first place, and you have to go back and you have to find the north star and reground yourself. And Guy Claxton wrote a book that I've got two copies of. One, I've scribbled so much on it that I can hardly read it anymore because there's like little bits all over it. But on the first line of the first chapter, I mean, it's called What's the Point of School? On the first line, first chapter, he said the point of school is to prepare young people to successfully and enthusiastically take their place in a fast-changing world. And that, to me, summed the whole thing up. That's why I did the job as a head teacher. My job was to help these kids to confidently step out from school into whatever they did next. And that transition, that progression is really important. So that book, uh, as I say, there's one pristine copy that I've got and one that's <laughs> scribbled all over. Um, and it's beaten as well because I've carried it around with me all over the place. I used to read it maybe three times a year when I was a head. I now read it once a year when I'm not a head, but I still read it once a year. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time coming and joining us today. And it's wonderful to hear from someone who's so knowledgeable and your viewpoints from car mechanic to teacher and being in the classroom and then being a leader and then coming back round and visiting schools and industries. You're such a rich person to talk to. So I really appreciate your time. And you've, it's been wonderful for me talking to you. So hopefully people listening and watching this, there's bits they've got from it too. Thanks so much. It's, it's, um, uh, I find it difficult to do these things because uh, people say lovely things about you, which is nice. <laughs> um, it's a journey and I'm still learning every day. And you, you, uh, you there's so much that I've still got to learn. And I have to pinch myself sometimes because I'm 60 this year and he's just thinking, how does that happen? You know, in my head, I'm still 28. Um, there's a love in, uh, there's a joy in, in what we do. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, teaching gets an awful lot of bad press, but it's a great job mm -hmm. because you, you get to impact on the way that kids think, the way that kids act and, and the aspiration that they've got. And, and that's priceless. So, yeah, if it, if it helps one or two teachers through through me gobbing off about what I've done over the course <laughs> of whatever, then it's worthwhile. But so, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's really nice to be at this end of a podcast as well. <laughs> Not used to it. I'm used to being at the other end. So, thanks very much. More than welcome. Thank you. How do you engage students in your subject? What is the toughest leadership decision you've made? Let us know by emailing podcast at whiterosemaths.com or on any of our social media channels. We read and reply to each one and would love to draw upon your thoughts in future episodes.